Well, welcome everyone. Thanks uh, to everyone in Bankland for tuning in. I'm extremely excited about today's event, and I know our viewers are too. Uh, quick introduction, I'm Brian Love, your co-moderator for today, and I'm the head of depository recruiting at the Trevelyan Group, which is a boutique executive recruitment firm uh, serving the financial services space since 1998. My division specifically covers community banks around the country, assisting with executive search and succession planning for boards, executives, and senior leadership teams. Uh, please connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, and visit www.trevilliangroup.com to sign up for our mailing list and learn about our bank practice and current search engagements. All of my contact information is available there, and I'd love to hear from you. So in this ever-changing industry, the Trevilian Group has made an emphasis to stay abreast of the top game-changing organizations and talent that exist within the fintech and community bank space. And for today's event, we're extremely excited to bring together three bank executives who are executing incredibly unique tech-centric strategies at their banks. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce today's panel. We have and I'll let you guys unmute yourselves. We have Larry Mazza, President, CEO, and Director at MVB Bank from West Virginia. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Brian. We have Eric Sprink, President, CEO, and Director at Coastal Financial Corporation from Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here. And we have Chuck Schaefer, who I was going to introduce as president and COO, but just Tuesday was officially named CEO and director of Seacoast Banking Corporation in Florida. Congratulations and welcome, Chuck. Thank you, Brian. Excited to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Lastly, I would like to introduce my co-moderator, Joe Fennick. How are you, Joe? I'm doing okay, Brian. Thanks very much. Um, afternoon, everybody. I'm Joe Fennick, uh, Chief Investment Officer of GenOp Capital Management uh, and content contributor for the Trevelyan Group. Uh, along with Brian, I'm going to be moderating uh, our discussion today. In my uh, former life, until very recently as a research analyst, I had the distinct pleasure of working with all of our panelists today, Larry, Eric, and Chuck, through my coverage of MVB, Coastal, and Seacoast. In the case of Seacoast and Chuck, my coverage goes back about 15 years uh, with, with Seacoast and some of the Florida banks. And frankly, you know, when we settled on this topic for the webinar, uh, Larry, Eric, and Chuck were, were, were pretty obvious and natural choices to do this with the incredible progress that each of their companies has made uh, in this area under their leadership. So gentlemen, good to be with you again. Um, so the topic for today is FinTech. More specifically, um, the intersection of community banking and fintech. And each of these three companies under the leadership of our panelists has been at the forefront, I'd say, of community banking uh, and embracing the opportunity, each in their own unique way. And that's probably a good place to, to, to start our discussion today. So why don't we go ahead and get started? So guys, from the perspective of a former bank analyst, something I've noticed as it relates to this topic is it tends to generate a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement, certainly more so than the discussion about community banking, right? But banks that are at the forefront of utilizing technology is really a key aspect of their strategy and their business model. They all tend to be labeled generically as FinTech oriented or technology forward, even though the strategies of each one tends to be very, very different. 
And that's certainly true of the, of the three of you all on the panel today. So to start, you know, a simple question. Can each of you guys take a couple of minutes to describe your business model, specifically, you know, the, distinct, the, the aspects of it that you feel like are distinctive relative to more traditional community banks, and then also relative to others you would consider more fintech-oriented community banks. So how about, uh, Eric, if you wouldn't mind leading off, and then we'll go to Larry and then Chuck. Great, you got it. Uh, so Joe, thank you again, and appreciate the invite uh, and, and humbled to be with your two other guests. They truly are industry experts. Um, so I, 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 you probably invited me to make them look good. So uh, I'll do my part. We, uh, Coastal is a 15 branch, billion seven community bank in the greater Puget Sound, or as Joe called it, the Seattle MSA, et cetera. Uh, we have three distinct divisions at the bank. Uh, our community bank, which we call CCB, our banking as a service division, or what we call CCBX. And then of course, in August, we announced our uh, collaboration with Google through our digital bank division. So uh, we're diversified, a little unique, but at the same time, we have our roots as a community bank. We're about 25 years old um, and uh, you know, really having to adjust to everything just like everybody else. But we did lean into technology uh, about four to five years ago and made the conscious decision to stay independent and to launch these alternative divisions. Great, Larry. Hey, thanks, Joe. And, and, and too, like Eric and Chuck, I'm glad to be here and happy to be here and appreciative. And thanks for the, the, the people who joined on the call too, especially the MVBers and our, our friends and directors. But um, happy new year to everybody. Hope it's to, off to a great start. But, but so, somewhat like Eric, we're around a $2.5 billion bank. Uh, we're on the NASDAQ, uh, Russell 2000 traded. Uh, we only have 13 branches, so we are branch light as far as that model goes uh, in, in that regard. Being only about uh, 21 years old, uh, we didn't have a chance to build a lot of branches, be that good or bad. And, and right now, the branch light model uh, works well for us. But I think when you look at our, when you ask me about our business model, it really circles around culture. And uh, we, we really focus on, you know, our team and then, and then it you know, as we work with our team, it goes to our clients, our shareholders, our community. But what I'd like to tell you about are three important things to us as far as the model. The first thing, uh, Joe, is our purpose. You know, our purpose is to be a trusted partner on the financial frontier committed to your success. There's three pieces to that purpose uh, that drive the business model. And those three pieces are one, trusted partnerships, the financial frontier, which we believe is FinTech. And we really experienced the financial frontier as far as this COVID environment. And then when you look at committed to your success, we look at four constituencies when we look at success. It's our teammates, it's our shareholders, it's our communities, and it's our client base. And th those are very important. For, those, for, those, for that purpose, we have five values. Our first three values really tie to trusted partnerships. We call it love, trust, and commitment. And I think anytime you're dealing with trusted partners, if you don't have that caring, you don't have that trust, and you don't have that committed, you real commitment, you really don't have a trusted partnership. And people ask those questions either consciously or subconsciously in, inter, uh, in, in, in human interactions. I think that's critical. The, the, the fourth value ties to the financial frontier, and that's adaptivity. Like him or not, Charles Darwin said it best. It's not the strongest or the smartest uh, that, uh, that survive. Uh, 
uh, it, it is the most adaptive of the species that survive. And I think right now, as you saw in the COVID environment, if you did not adapt and change to that environment, you, you were going to be wiped out. And then our last value is teamwork. And teamwork ties to that um, um, part of commitment to your success. And just like raising a child, it takes a village. Well, it takes a team to be successful to, to service those four for those four. That's what drives us, our purpose and our values. We don't really have a mission. We, we think a mission is a great thing, but it's more of a military term, like go capture the hill. And then once you capture the hill, now what do we do? But we have one more thing that really drives us to get us out of bed, I think, every day. And that's something we call the moonshot. And the moonshot, of course, uh, it goes back to 1962 when John F. Kennedy was president and when he talked about taking off to the moon, and, and it seemed impossible at the time. The Russians were well ahead of us and uh, looked like they were going to dominate space. But seven years later, we did land a person on the moon, and, and it was a changing day. So we have that big, hairy, audacious goal as well, and we want to positively financially impact one billion people, one billion lives. And so that takes a lot of tech. It takes a lot of good people, and that's, that's what drives us every day, and, and that's what inspires us. So when you go back and drop down into our business model a little deeper, what you look at is four areas that we, we, we focus on. And we pick these four areas because of what we call blue ocean strategies. You know, there's blue oceans and red oceans in, in the business world. And the red ocean is filled with the blood of competition. And the blood of competition is, hey, we're all going after the same 10 clients. The margins are going to zero. Uh, it's, just, it's just tough, tough, tough environment, extremely competitive. And I'll give you a really case in point is the uh, trading industry, E-Trade. You know, look at the pricing there. And Charles Schwab, especially because of Robinhood's in the market, their, their pricing is going to zero. And so that's where we don't want to be. And we want to be in the blue ocean. Blue ocean is uh, there's a lot less competition. It's not uh, it, the pricing and the margins are still there. So we look at uh, blue ocean opportunities. And there's four that we really have uh, concentrated on. One is the payments industry. The reason we like the payments industry is it's a $112 trillion market. And that's with a T. And so it's very large, it's very big. And, and if we can just get a small piece of that, it's very profitable in both deposits and fees for us. The other area that we focus on is gaming. And, and when we talk about gaming, you now hear a lot about DraftKings, FanDuel, et cetera. And those are the areas that, that we focus on as well. We also do some in cryptocurrency and banking as a service. Um, we call those um, highly regulated businesses. Some would call them high risk businesses. Um, we call them high margin businesses and, and they've been very good to us. And it drives the last thing of our business model and it's what we call our flywheel. If you look at the flywheel and, and what drives us around, one is we go after what we think is passionate A plus talent uh, with a growth mindset. Once we have that, we articulate a vision for the blue ocean that we're going after, that piece of the blue ocean. Then we fund it strategically with technology and, and, and then we ignite, I think, a great partner experience. And then once we have that great partner experience, we're, 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 we're thriving to touch one people, one billion people. We know we have to uh, cultivate a powerful global reputation. And we do have clients that are actually international now in the gaming industry, et cetera, and hope to grow more there. And then lastly, a piece of the flywheel, we want to really unleash uh, exceptional shareholder value. And I think then it starts all over again. Once our shareholders are happy and we're able to build that capital, we're able to reinvest in our people, and then the flywheel starts, starts back around. 
Um, so that's basically our model and I'll, I'll kick it over to Chuck. Thanks, Larry. And thanks, Joe and Brian, for uh, giving me the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be with uh, both you and, uh, and Eric, you know, very innovative bank. And it's an honor to be on a panel with you. Um, we're a uh, $8 billion bank in Florida. It's almost a 100-year-old franchise. We're approaching 100 years here. And uh, kind of uh, notably, uh, when it kind of leans into the tech side, have been uh, very innovative around analytics. We um, and uh, as well as automated cross-sell and, and, and automated marketing. And, and we can talk about that as we go through the day. But um, we, uh, we operate a very traditional community bank in the sense of we have a commercial business, a retail business, a mortgage business, and a wealth line of business. And uh, then over the last five years, really maybe going back to 2014, maybe the last six years now, very focused on driving strong shareholder returns, better customer experiences by using uh, automated cross-sell analytics and digital tools, not only to um, deliver products more efficiently, but importantly, deliver right products at the right moment, at the right time to customers. And we, uh, we've uh, got a number of patents pending on our analytics platform. And uh, a lot of that has led to significant efficiency gains uh, starting with our retail business and now moving into our commercial business, why by driving uh, you know greater products to, to customers. So you know the company has uh, been incredibly profitable and uh, is uh, also been acquisitive. So we've uh, had this unique combination of uh, uh, making uh, what I think are very smart acquisitions and high value markets in combination with um, sort of leading digital and analytics tool set. And lastly, uh, positioning the franchise and what are some of the fastest growing markets in, in you know, the great state of Florida. So it's been a good run and excited to be here to talk about it. Great, great overview, guys. I appreciate it. Um, I'm sure our audience does too. So with that, I've got a variation of this next question for, for, for all three of you as well. So Larry, MVB you know, is a one-stop shop in the payments uh, space. Coastal's a pioneer in banking as a service. Seacoast, as Chuck just explained, is an, has an expertise in the utilization of data analytics. But taking a step back, Larry, how did it all come about? How did the idea to reorient the company come about? What were the specific steps that you took? Uh, what were the big impediments, the, you know, the blocks along the way? And then how did the business model essentially evolve into the strategy you just described for us? Hey, Joe, uh, I think that's a great question. And, you know, where they say necessity is the mother of invention. And so in 2014, we were really in a tough place. We were growing loans by 20% CAGR, compound annual growth rate. Uh, we were what we called ourselves as a loan machine. We could really do good, high quality loans. But the issue was we weren't getting deposits. So we had to buy those deposits to match up with our, our loan growth. When you start going out and buying high cost deposits, your margins start to really get squeezed. And when we step back and look at our margins compared to our peers, we were 106 basis points uh, lower than our peer group, and it was only getting worse. So we knew we had to change and, and, and go a, a different direction. So that really was the motivation uh, that, that drove us was to get deposits. So we heard about FinTech and FinTech and FinTech, we had hired an engineer by the name of Matt West, and he's our chief strategy officer. 
I asked him to do a white paper on FinTech. And he did this white paper. He outlined what FinTech was back then, where it was going. And we came up with a definition of FinTech, which is very broad. And there's a number of definitions of FinTech out there. But we believe uh, FinTech to MBB is anybody who moves or manages money through technology. And so when you look at the payment vertical that we talked about, payments itself, it's a $112 trillion vertical, like I said uh, earlier. And so when we got into payments, especially for gaming and crypto and now banking as a service, we know it was highly regulated. So that became an obstacle for us that we had to overcome as regulation because we went out and, and decomposed the exam public examination reports that are that our other uh, brother and sister banks got in front of us, the, the banks that were leading FinTech uh, in 14 and 15. And we saw that regulation was a big hurdle. Uh, we went out and acquired two big companies, two important companies to us. One was called Chartwell Compliance, uh, Daniel Weiss's company. He started it about 12 years ago, and it's now over 30 compliance professionals that consult not only for MBB, but for other uh, banks that want to get into fintech as well as fintech companies. So we turned a cost center into a profit center. We then went out, since we were acquiring so many accounts, another company that was a consulting-based group called Paladin. Uh, Jim Houlihan led that, started that with, with Jamie Whitehead and, and Hare, and, and, and they uh, did a great job with fraud. So we, we started to overcome those obstacles of regulation through those two companies and then made investments into two reg tech companies. One's called SoCure, another called Finclusive. So we had that to, to, to get into. We started to get into a lot of, 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 of Fin financial. We didn't have a lot of tech. And so now we've started to take it in that direction. Now we're creating technology and acquiring technology uh, and, and continue to hire uh, you know, talent. Now we're starting to hire, hire developers, et cetera, to continue to develop that, that. So that's basically the hurdles, the evolution and where we're going today. And Larry, I think it's worth pointing out too, these aren't theoretical or you know, forward expectations that you have. There's tangible evidence of the progress you guys have made. Your deposit base through these initiatives has been completely transformed. I mean, I remember uncovering the stock. I think just 8% of your deposits were non-interest at the start of this process and they're 40% today. Yeah, Joe, it, it, that's been a big transformation. Not only were we, remember, in 2014, really paying high cost for deposits, now 40% of our deposit base, or nearly 40%, is non-interest bearing. So it's, it's been a fantastic transformation. The team's done a great job. But also, Joe, what's transforming, too, is our non-interest income. You know, we, we get a few ticks off of those payments and some other services, which really uh, will drive profitability for us um, today and into the future. So it, it has been tangible. We're very happy about that. Chuck, uh, turning to you, Seacoast Journey has been super impressive in the sense that you alluded to this earlier. You guys had a traditional community bank with a great deposit base uh, run by the same family, the Hudson family, for literally almost 100 years. Bank in the, in the, during the, the Great Depression. Uh, and to his credit, Denny uh, Hudson, the now executive chairman and former CEO, had the insight which is the first step, but then he also allowed the transformation of the company to proceed. And you were a key member of the management team all the way through and now as the CEO. Through all that, you had, the, um, you had other considerations too. You had private equity on your board for a good part of that time. You had a skeptical investment community. 
to convince that this was the right approach and the right way to go. Uh, can you take us through your journey uh, or Seacoast journey and then, you know, the peaks and valleys that you encountered along the way? Yeah, sure. You know, and uh, like Larry said, this kind of goes back to really all the way back to 2014. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, kind of what kicked this off was uh, Denny Hudson, our, our executive chairman at the time, was, uh, you know, incredibly became to, uh, started to become incredibly concerned around, you know, you know, mobile in his view and sort of had the, the clear, clear vision that mobile uh, banking would transform the industry. And as such, you know, we needed to be far out ahead of mobile. And as a result, we, um, uh, a number of things happened that year. Um, we recruited in uh, Jeff Lee, who's our chief digital officer. And, and I'll talk about his background in a second. And I moved um, out of the finance side of the organization to running retail with what was an incredibly well-run, awesome retail machine that was working in sort of the pre-mobile world. And uh, in the big sort of opportunity when, when Jeff and I got together during that period of time was to reduce, you know, we had this incredibly well-run, efficient cross-sell model uh, in retail that was based on walk-in traffic conversations, needs-based conversations. But kind of the moment we both came to when he joined and, and, and I moved into that role was that, uh, you know, if we pushed really hard on mobile, we would basically disintermediate the original revenue model. And so as such, we started thinking about how are we gonna do this? Because one, we love the benefit that mobile was gonna give us to take down the branch infrastructure. So we had this cost that we are carrying around that related to the branch network. And at that time we were very concentrated across the East coast of Florida and branches. And so there was this obvious branch consolidation, but by driving hard on mobile, you know, what was that going to do to our ability to grow and, and, and cross sell? And that led us to Jeff's background, which he came from uh, American express and had a background in digital cross sell. And so as we started looking at, the, the bank's data, what became clear is, you, you know, every bank has every behavioral data on a customer. We know where you're spending your money on debit. We know where you're borrowing money. We know, you know who you're paying, how you're paying them, when you're paying them. And we started, uh, the first thing we started doing was building out a massive database that integrated all of the information on the core. And we run on a single core into a platform where we could see all these behaviors. And we now have I think it's over 200,000 pieces of data on any customer. And that includes like timestamps and, and anything. And every year that you're, you're out uh, doing things. And so as we started to build that, it became clear that the, the old school uh, cross-sell model could be supplemented with, with data-driven analytics. And so what we began doing was uh, in, in kind of in the classic card world, you don't have people out selling products. So what you do is you cross sell uh, into online. So you'd cross sell via digitally or direct mail or et cetera. What we then did is we took all this data and we started building cross sell and automated cross sell models. So for example, if you were in the market spending a thousand dollars a month on your debit card for at Home Depot, you're probably renovating your house. We could talk to you about a home, a home improvement express loan. Historically, we would send a piece of direct mail or, or, or an email to that customer hoping we would convert. What we did at the time is we rotated the entire organization around that to say, 
you know, we want uh, everybody in the branch network and then ultimately in our commercial side, et cetera, working leads because these leads would then be based on the analytics. So we knew, and what we found is over time, the analytics was so good at being predictive. And we, we also hired a number of guys that uh, came on that were kind of uh, analytics experts and could build uh, models and build models that could continue to learn. We started to use that. What we found is the models were so good that when we'd make an outreach, you know, we were getting 20 to 30% positive response rates. And so we just kept building on it and building on it, building on it, but we centered the culture of the organization around using the analytics to drive leads to where today, I think, and I can't remember the exact number, but I think we make about 4,000 calls a week to our customers. We call every customer four times a year three times on, a, on, an, on an offer and one time on sort of a thank you. And when you sort of do the math around that, we began running the company on the math of analytics. Secondly, we sort of laid on top of that, once we got that built, we got the culture built and we started making the outbound calls. We built an incentive plan to support the behaviors. Then we built customer lifetime value across the entire organization. And so why that became incredibly important is now we can say, what is the value of each customer? What is the next press product to enhance that value? And what do we want our team doing to get it there? And so, for example, a customer that may have been a low value, heavy branch user, we wanted to talk to that customer about mobile. So we would send a direct mail on mobile. We'd send a dollar checkout and say, if you deposit the dollar, you get to sign up for mobile. If you came into the branch, they talked to you about mobile. If you called the call center, they talked to you about mobile. We, everything we talked to that one customer about was mobile flip it over to the dentist that had an owner-occupied building with us, no working capital line, and wasn't using his checking account. When that guy came into the branch, it was to talk about a working capital line or to talk about a, uh, a, uh, using uh, your debit card on your, on, your, on your checking account. And so we layered that into all the roles in the organization and began driving you know, meaningful and significant uh, opportunity in the company. But it also led to increasing values. So now we started thinking about the company, not only from sort of a financial return and driving returns in the company, but, you know, what are we doing with the customer base and managing the customer base uh, from a, uh, from a uh, customer value perspective? And so it was a cultural life-changing event in how we think about running the business also impacts how we think about M&A. And so it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about extracting value. Great, Chuck. Really comprehensive. Look forward to digging, in, digging into some of the things you said a little bit here. Uh, Eric, opposite corner of the country from Chuck in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you steered the company through a challenging recap, to say the least, 10 years ago. The easy thing to do with that, with that franchise you had there, uh, a jewel of a franchise, I, I should say, would have been to just sort of ride the recovery wave. And at any time, you would have had the opportunity in the last 10 years to pull the ripcord and sell at a very nice premium. Um, but when did the light bulb, you know, instead you went in another direction, when did the light bulb go off where you and the board said, hey, we think there's a lot more we can do with this. And then what was the process you sort of went through to, 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 to make that vision happen? Uh, no, thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, and, and first off, God, I love hearing Chuck talk. That is just so inspirational and awesome. Um, just compliments. Uh, I, I would say that you know, our journey too started in around 2015, 2016 on an alternative path. But I, I don't want to scare the audience at the same time because you're hearing Larry and Chuck and I all say we started this stuff five, six, seven years ago. And Chuck's 
and, and Larry's perspective, it's never too late to start and just know that your other community banks have done it, you can do it. But with that said, um, yeah, we, we, we were very blessed to have a very nice franchise in the Pacific Northwest. Bellevue, Seattle, Everett are doing extremely well. We, we are fortunate to have Amazon, Microsoft, Expedia, Redfin, plus et al in our markets that are driving growth, driving values, um, and quite frankly, a very nice rising tide. And in our specific niche of that market area, we're by far the largest community bank via market share distribution. And so, yeah, the the, the board, myself, uh, we're getting asked to dance, which is always flattering, humbling. Um, so it was uh, very enticing to flip the franchise at two plus times book. If you remember back to 2016, 2017, when book values were 225 plus and deals were going off at 250. The board absolutely considered that. Um, and, and we did speak with our investment bankers. We, we spoke with Hubdi Financial at the time, who was great for us uh, in advising us and walking us through that. We uh, also worked with KBW for a second opinion. And we were able to bring them in and say, okay, listen, uh, we, we, we have some alternative theories. Uh, we didn't have the formal white paper written, but we were doing a ton of research down the path of all of, are there alternative ways that we can monetize our operations, our compliance that we are really good at as a bank. And in the industry, we're all really good at compliance and oversight, and BSA management. That, I mean, unfortunately, that's what we excel at is being safe. Um, not always on the cutting edge of smart, but definitely we excel at being safe. And so. Um, we explored not only selling the franchise, but we explored taking the franchise public to allow some of our institutional shareholders liquidity and to raise additional capital to allow us to go down this path. Uh, and then we, we, we had the real hard question of the viability of our ability to implement an alternative strategy and to partner with outside technology companies uh, to provide them infrastructure and what would be required to do that, uh, to form joint ventures, partnerships with regtech fintechs that we invested in such as Neocova, et cetera. Um, and so we, we really did a very long soul searching, heart wrenching process and said to remain independent, the math is very easy. And all of the bankers in the audience have to abide by this rule that Listen, if you're gonna remain independent and not give your shareholders the super premium of a change of control, you have to outperform your peers because you're not gonna take their stock. You have to outperform your peers at one and a half times on any given metrics or else it's kind of our duty to say, I need to give my franchise to somebody else because they can manage the investment better. And that's a hard truth of being a publicly traded bank as Coastal is. And so we went through the math and said, man, in our markets and in our peers, they're growing at eight to 10% a year. Um, and their net income, their ROAs are 130 to 150. So how do we grow at 20% a year? And how do we get an ROA uh, close to the 1718192? What are the methods to do that? And so we, we had a proclivity on the board for an entrepreneurial spirit. And we went down the path of this banking as a service or as the time at what we call wholesale banking. And obviously we're in the market with Amazon and Microsoft and, and everyone around us. Mobile adoption was not even a question. That was the first FinTech application, right? That everybody saw and adopted. Maybe ATMs were the first FinTech application. 
I think Larry said it right. It's just moving money electronically. It's that simple. No, nothing fancy about it. So we, we started down that path and we landed our first customer who happened to be Aspiration Financial out of Los Angeles, a wonderful broker dealer that wanted to roll out checking and savings accounts. Do good, do well is their motto. We believed in them as people. Andre is a visionary CEO. And we said, hey, let, let us be your bank and let us learn how to do this. They were gracious enough to choose us. And we started down this path and it worked. And the regulators supported us many, many times talking to the regulators. Um, but we kind of got the blessing to say, okay, this is a viable path. We can make money doing it. Uh, we can support this. We can monetize our compliance and operations excellence. Um, the, you know, the real hard part was once you got past the regulators, is there a market for this? And so we put out our feelers and we started to quickly become overwhelmed with opportunity in the banking as a service. So as soon as we felt that, we had the data points to sell the franchise, to go public. And if we were gonna go public and remain independent, then we needed to find out this business strategy. The board said, hey, we can make a go of this. It's gonna require a ton of infrastructure and a commitment to lean into technology and to lean into banking as a service or wholesale banking, to lean into digital banking for ourselves as well, and to modernize our community bank, right? That just can't sit. I think everything you've heard Larry and Chuck say is right on, and we all know that margins are under pressure and have been for 15, 20 years. It's not something new, it is accelerating, my belief. So the board really proverbially put a stake in the ground and said, we're in. And we started to diversify our board simultaneously with tech forward thinking individuals. And then it kind of started working backwards. Uh, then became the infrastructure build, right? We only have one client still and you're, we're starting to spend millions of dollars on infrastructure to build this to where eventually we could support others in their goals and dreams of helping others and empowering uh, technology focused individuals in their communities that are technology uh, driven, but still distinct communities with values based on collective organization. Uh, and, and so it was fun, it's been fun watching it, but we also couldn't do that without building that infrastructure, partnering. Uh, I don't know about the other two, but I have the pleasure of getting uh, exams from the Federal Reserve Bank and the DFI every 90 days. Uh, we are not in trouble, I can say that, but we are, well, I think what Larry said, complex. Uh, and complex organizations get examined a lot. So every 90 days to support that, right? We've had to build this data infrastructure similar to what Chuck is talking about. I love what he is saying because he's focused on it on generating revenue. Initially, we have built our data management systems and infrastructure, AI-based, right? And I actually have PhD guys and AI on staff now, engineers, but our data management and our data infrastructure is initially being built for reg tech purposes. Very similar to what Larry did is Larry bought it and he bought two fantastic companies with industry leading expertise. We're co-building it with, as I mentioned, Niakova, Sultan and his group, uh, as well as Sinterra recently announced to help us with reg tech and data management, data infrastructure and that architecture. Someday, I do hope to be able to offer more proactive or prescriptive cross-sell propensity models to our fintech partners to help them and their dreams and aspirations of helping their customers as well as pointing those arrows back at my own community bank. 
Um, so it, it's been an interesting journey, Joe. It's been about five years in the making now. Uh, before that, you're right, it was six years of build the community bank, build the infrastructure. We were so fortunate with all of the consolidation that happened in the state of Washington through the recession, the Great Recession, 2009, 10, and 11, that we were able to pick up some key executives uh, from these other financial institutions in our market. And, and really, they took over running the bank, which allowed me to play with and envision and then subsequently build with some of these same individuals this other alternative strategies. Um, but here's the interesting part. Once we built that reg tech oversight compliance for digital applications, of course, then we can leverage that and apply it to our own digital bank efforts, right? Because opening an account online is a tactic. And once you feel comfortable that you can manage fraud, that you can manage the BSA oversight and any type of money laundering activities, there's no reason not only to enable our fintechs, but to enable Coastal to open accounts online and enable other vendors. And in this case, I'm referencing Google and the new Google Plex account. We were very fortunate and happy to be chosen amongst the first 11 financial institutions um, to participate in that. And I think partially why we were chosen is because we leaned into this strategy of using technology to talk to customers, using technology to improve the oversight and then, uh, God bless Chuck, eventually learning to use that technology and data management for propensity modeling. Hope Great. that helps. Yeah, no, fantastic, Eric, thank you. Brian? Yeah, and I was gonna kind of change the change subjects, but what I'm hearing from everyone is that, you know, you're only as good as your team and all the growth that has happened at your banks is is terrific. And, and uh, I wanna kind of probe a little deeper into culture and talent, which, you know, I'm very passionate about as a, as a recruiter here in this bank space. So um, first question is really, for, I guess, for Eric and for Larry, I'd love to hear your take on this. And then Chuck, I've got a question for you right after. Um, both uh, MVB and Coastal have their own kind of carved out fintech divisions. Now, my first thought was that the culture of, this, of these tech units and then your traditional bank unit would be completely different. And that's kind of the reason why you did it. But as we were talking over the past couple of weeks, I realized that I, it, it was actually a misconception. What was the decision to establish these separate departments? Um, you know, Eric, you can lead off, like I said, and then Larry, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, uh, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Uh, the culture of the bank is the culture of the bank. And I think Larry did a beautiful job of articulating in his uh, introduction that he leads uh, with culture in essence uh, by describing what they aspire to achieve and how they're going to do it. Uh, and I love the vision of the moonshot, right? That is a collective cultural statement. And, and I, I would hope at our bank as well and, and our value system that our cultures align, whether you work in the community bank, whether you work at CCBX or whether you work in our digital bank, it's collectively the same core values of the bank, which we too publish to employees that there's seven core values at the bank that generically uh, doesn't matter if you're on the banking side or more the technology side. It's listen, our purpose, the reason people pay us money at Coastal, the why we always start with the why is why does Coastal exist? And it's to empower others to achieve their dreams. 
right? And we fight for the underdog because Coastal, quite frankly, is the underdog. And so we feel good with that mantra. And so we're fighting to enable others to fight and to empower them. And so what that requires us in our core values with that purpose and the why we exist is to be unbanking, to be flexible, right? These are core values of a highly regulated industry bank, right? Number one, be unbanking, be flexible, fight to win, right? We, we say the actual words, care for each other in our core values. And that doesn't matter where you work in the company. What we we like to circulate around is a collective entrepreneurialism, right? That's a cultural value to say, I don't care myself, the board, all the way down to everyone in the organization, collectively, horizontally, we're all entrepreneurs trying to fight for others to win. So really, it's more semantics when you get into the discussion of different divisions. It's really semantics getting down to how do you do, in our case, as a publicly traded company, uh, segment accounting, segment reporting, uh, as well as understanding cost, as well as understanding revenue and, and having the analytics behind it. But that's all behind the scenes and becoming more of a data management company and then entrepreneurialism and reporting. I will say the regulators, it helps them understand and articulate our communication back and forth because it allows them to direct their questions more poignantly towards things that they have thoughts on. Um, but at, this, at, at the end of the day, I, you know, it's, we're all in this together. We're all about helping the underdog fight to win. And, and collectively, I think what I hear from our customers, whether they're via one of our branches or whether they're one of our partners or whether they're uh, working with the Google teams over there, it's that, wow, they, they come back to Coastal and say, you guys are solution oriented. You're willing to listen. You care about us. Uh, you're really trying to help us and your flexibility and your stance, is, we, we just love. So I hope that helps you understand the misnomers out there. But yes, we did have to do it for other reasons. Yeah, Larry, did you so, want to chime in? Sure. I, I, I Quickly, what I would say is, you know, it, it's it's exactly what Eric said. It's it's one team, though, just like a football team you may have an offense, a defense, a special teams, et cetera. You, we have a, a team that's focused on FinTech. And the reason we have that team is what we call to fight the immune system, right? So just like in this COVID environment, you know, when you have anything foreign coming to your body, your immune system fights it. So in banking, the traditional bank would have a tendency to fight FinTech and, and put it off. So we put it outside of the immune system, uh, one, to seek those blue ocean opportunities to the, develop our learned secrets, because being ahead, we do learn some, some secrets that we want to do it. We want to develop moats around our clients so that we can keep them, of course. And then just in case we want to break out the unit, unit Brian, and what I mean by that is if you look at Live Oak, who's done a fantastic job, they've been a pioneer in FinTech, they broke out Encino from the bank. And now Encino is actually bigger than the bank. It's about a $7 billion market cap where Live Oak is around a billion. So they did a fantastic job of separating those units. And that's why we do that with FinTech. It's all one team, one culture, uh, all love, trust, and commitment there, but it's, it, it, it is outside the immune system. Yeah, I like that credo that you got, the love, trust, commitment, not just because my last name is love, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chuck, I want to I get to you. And, and I think Eric mentioned a little earlier that, you know, 
five, six years ago, you know, the, the banks here on, on the call got into it and there's some banks that are jumping into it now and it's not too late. So let's just assume that a community bank came to this realization, you know, 2020, even right now, um, they were underinvested and unprepared for what's transpired, or maybe they're slow to respond or didn't have the right technological capabilities. So now they're diving in. And as Larry mentioned, now they're ready to adapt. Um, from the experience of the transformation undertaken by Seacoast, you know, six-ish years ago, what are some of these basic fundamental things that you would put on the checklist for what, for this, you know, this bank uh, to consider? Yeah, um, I guess to start maybe one, I don't think you have an option, so I wouldn't wait. Um, I think uh, the world is changing so fast and I think customer expectations are changing so rapidly. I think there's so much evidence of that in the national banks continuing to take significant share uh, from the community banks. You know, you just look at any market share data in any, any market and you see uh, Chase and B of A, for example, just continuing to, to gobble share. And it's because they're using technology to provide better customer experiences. And while sort of the legacy uh, business of providing great service is still critically important, Unfortunately, in the world ahead, it's got to be, uh, it's got, you got to bring it all. You got to bring technology, you got to bring service, you got to bring a call center that's world-class and you got to do it all in a way that's integrated and that the customer experiences a, a hell of experience all the way across to be competitive. And so that requires sort of a cultural mindset in the sense of one, there is no option other than to get this done. Otherwise you won't be around. And two, it's better for the customer. And so, you know, when we started down this path, one, you know, we did have a number of board members join our bank that weren't traditional community bank board members, you know, came out of much larger national organizations with broad depth of experience. But two, we, um, we worked really hard in the organization through a number of different ways to bring everybody into the sort of light of why this is important. We had these big, what we told at the time, navigator sessions where we had these big, it was almost like a game, but it was a big map of, we wanna go from here to there and this is why, and this is why it matters and we need your help to get there. But I would say our story in and of itself is rooted in the idea of diverse thinking to complex problems. And we used people from all over the organization to develop this strategy and to bring ideas and to be a part of it to where Everybody in the organization, regardless of where they were at, was, you know, engaged with it, believed in it, saw the value in it. And just like anything, the, the important thing was one laying a vision out that was clear on where we wanted to head. In that vision, we had to be very articulate as to why it was important and what we expected the outcomes to be. And then thirdly, it was, you know, how are we going to get there and how we need your help? And so some of it was very bold in what we did. You know, Joe would remember back in 2017, we laid out what we called Vision 2020 in February 17, set some very aggressive expectations around what we were going to deliver to shareholders. So, for example, in that case, we laid about a vision. We laid out, you know, why this was important. And then we said, this is kind of put our money where our mouth is and what we think we can get done with this. And that helped to bring the, the commitment as to what the benefit would be as we got to the end of this and uh, allowed us to not only sort of sell the story as to why it was important, but to what we were going to get out of it. But it all started with having a very sort of 
clear path as to what we were doing and why it was important. And of course, we innovated along the way and things changed along the way. But like when I go back to that story about 2015, 2014, Jeff and I kind of thinking through this, we had a reason we wanted to do it. We had a general idea where we were headed and, and, and had to articulate that story both externally and internally over and over and over again to make sure we had the buy-in and followership. But you got to have your story straight. You got to have your reasons why it's important. And you got to connect everything from the customer to the outcomes, you know, and, and be able to talk about it in, in, in such a way. Thanks for that, Chuck. And you know, I appreciate that. It's it's clear that uh, Seacoast, you know, kind of empowers uh, the people, and I, it's nice to hear that everyone basically was involved in that vision three years ago. Um, one last question about talent. I'm going to direct this one to Larry, and then we're going to move uh, move forward uh, for the sake of time. By the way, to our viewers, we may go a little bit past three o'clock Eastern, um, so you know, please feel free to stay with us. So, Larry, um, you know, if a bank is going to make this pivot. And embrace technology and change, you know, talent. That's the word. Seems like the word of the hour here. That's what they need to make it happen. Obviously, you know, again, you know, Trevelyan knows talent pretty well. But I'd like to understand how you determine the type of talent that you need at MVB. And you know, a couple little facets here. You know, how do you find it? What's the overall strategy around attracting it? Especially you're in West Virginia, which you know, there's not a hotbed of fintech talent there. Um, obviously there's unique things you may need to do to attract it and, and compensate it. Um, and then also integrating it. So you can take it any direction you'd like, Larry. Hey, hey Brian, thank you very much. That, that's a great question. We really started with leadership. Uh, the, the person who leads our HR department would not be a common person that you'd find in a $2 billion, 500 person company. Thanks, Brad Greathouse. And, and he was with GE He's with Milan Pharmaceutical, and he's with Tesla. He at one point had 6,000 people under his HR area. So he's a phenomenal uh, person as far as culture and talent and really helped us uh, improve the culture and really hire some of the best talent, I think, in the country, pound for pound uh, for, for where we are today. It really is the secret, secret sauce. That's why we, we so much focus on the, the culture piece and it's the number one driver in our flywheel. We start with, you know, A plus talent that's, that's highly motivated and passionate about what they're doing, wanting to help people drive that, you know, moonshot of, of, of positively financially impacting 1 billion lives. Um, and so we, we do that. When you, when you talk about West Virginia, it's, you know, it's almost heaven. So it, it is a good place to be. It's not as warm as Florida or, or the West Coast out there with Eric, which is a lot of fun too. But, um, you know, what we do is COVID's validated this, but we started it before COVID. We actually have employees in 25 different states and two foreign countries. We, we, have, a, we have a part of Chartwell. We have people in Tel Aviv. And we have some people in Eastern Europe is all, all part of, the, of our company. So we let people have, you know, be remote and, and be dispersed. So we actually recruit talent all over the country. We, for our FinTech sales office, we have a location in Salt Lake City. You know, the hotbeds you know, for FinTech and those specialties are like you know, Silicon Valley, Salt Lake City, Boston, DC, you know, Austin, et cetera. But if they want to live there, that's fine. Uh, you know, we align payment you know, with, with you know, contribution. And, and shareholder value. And, and I think that's always uh, uh, very important. But, um, you know, that, that's kind of the, the, the way we've done it. I, I think the way we, we really attract is, is 
our vision, you know, our culture, uh, and then uh, ownership. You know, we, we believe in people who act like owners act a lot different than those who are just employees, so to speak. You know, it's a lot, you know, so that, that's important to us as well as part of the way we, we frame all that. But we have been really fortunate to attract, I think, some of the best talent in the country. Well, that's great, Larry. I, I can't help. I just want to ask, maybe you guys give me 30 seconds on this real quick. A lot of banks are maybe a little bit scared to bring in non-bank talent. So I don't know. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, engineers. Eric mentioned some folks. Chuck, you mentioned people that are from outside of banking. Is there maybe just a 30-second nugget that uh, maybe Eric, can you give me about integrating non-bank talent and maybe not having fear of non-bank talent? Hey, Eric, you're on mute. All right, rule number one, I broke. And I wasted eight seconds of my 30 seconds. Uh, we, we love it. We're, we're okay with it. Um, and it is working great. Uh, I love having people outside of banking look at us because they tend to think that we're archaic. And they're like, why not? Why do you do it that way? They ask a lot of good questions. Chuck, you want to you wanna opine? Yeah, I think I think Eric said it well. Uh, at same, we we brought in a number of folks that uh, don't necessarily have traditional bank experience, but you know, looking for great innovative people, you know, they they can learn the business and bring a outside in view that I would say you know was part of our transformation story for sure, and a lot of value in having. Uh, people look at challenges that don't necessarily have the history that bring new perspectives. You know, that is the key to innovation. And I can tell lots of stories about lots of different things we've done over time where people have been brought in that not don't necessarily have the exact same background that Brent bought, brought uh, tremendous value to, to solving problems. So yeah, we're, we're totally open to it. Yeah. You, we don't really look at it as bankers or non-bankers. We're all one team. I think that's the first thing, but you're right. We have some people from, what, what we were saying, traditional banking, but we do have engineers. We have people that were fintech entrepreneurs, et cetera. They do help change the, the thinking, but it's still trying to, you know, payments, payments are part of banking. It's just, again, I'm gonna use the football analogy. You know, if you look at kickers, they're coming out of soccer. So you find the best talent where, where it comes from to, to meet the need. You know, Lynn Swan was a dancer and a gymnast. You know, he wasn't a traditional football. You know, so you look at those, where's the best place to find talent? And it's not always in the same place. You do have to think outside the box, take sure. those risks and, and, and change your thinking. It's really pretty neat to bring those new, new people in. Thanks guys. Let's move it to M&A if we could, uh, if we can. Chuck, most of the banks that are technology forward or FinTech oriented, I'd say, tend to be less acquisitive, partly because maybe M&A can be challenging from a cultural integration standpoint maybe even a distraction from this kind of new and unique strategy. I think Secos is really unique in the, in the sense that you all have reoriented the business model and you've been highly successful. You're a top fundamental performer, you're technology forward, and yet you've also, you're also very acquisitive. You've remained very acquisitive through this process. So on the one hand, I'm guessing it's a challenge to really culturally assimilate a small bank and bring it up to your standards. But on the other hand, there's also tremendous opportunity there, right? So can you talk about your experience uh, on yeah. That. Sure. Yeah. And I would say, you know, when you look at traditional community banks, you know, I would say every management team of those banks knows that they've got to change. They may not know how to get there, 
but they know this is real, right? And and they're they're fearful of it, and they should be. And so generally, the management teams at community banks know that there's a path forward, and very much can connect with what we're doing and why. And we spend a fair amount of time explaining that when we get into into deals and early in deals. And I, I would say that um, the other thing for us from an MA perspective, a couple of things I, I could say. One, you know, we've done 10 transactions in the last five years or so. After a while, it does become a competency and we have people that are very experienced in it. But two, kind of having the technology lean that we started with also has helped in MA. One, we do all of our MA transactions with um, robotic process automation very different than using the cores to do it. So it allows it to move faster and easier. And, uh, and two, we, um, what we see, which is, which is pretty interesting, you know, when you look at your typical smaller community bank that may have two, two and a half products per relationship, we'll see in our deals, because we run these automated predictive models on it, that expand from two and a half to five to six over maybe a four year period. So not only is it valuable for us organically, it's super valuable as extracting value out of M&A targets. And so, and when, so when we go into a deal, one of the things we're, we're pretty uh, purposeful about is we start working on that team early with uh, helping them understand our culture and why we do what we do, kind of the same story storyline I talked about earlier. But two, we close, convert, consolidate on a Friday. They open at Seacoast on a Monday. So everything changes. They moved our system, they moved our platform, our automated cross-sell models start. We change the signs, we paint the walls, we change their computers out. It all happens over a weekend. So we don't run a model where we have multiple cultures operating. You know, there's a lot of conglomerate type banks that do a lot of MA that tend to want to leave things alone in the in the equipment in the uh, targets. We integrate them from day one and uh it just takes a lot of coaching and a lot of uh, helping people understand, you know, it's kind of a soft negotiation to help them get there. But, uh, but ultimately people do because they know when they go home at night, they're hitting the Amazon button to buy something, something's changed there. Right. And so banking's no different. We're all going through the same transformation. So they're already there. We just got to help them understand why we do it the way we do. Got it. Yeah. That's great. Chuck love hearing about RPA being used during M and a um, very intuitive. Uh, we have basically two last uh, topics here this afternoon. Um, I'm going to go to Eric here for this next question. We'll also get Larry and Chuck to chime in. And this really is about the future. We started the conversation with everyone describing their current strategy. Then we stepped back and we had you kind of give us the origins of how everything evolved. The obvious next question to ask is where do we go from here? Um, you know, and, and what does your business model look like in the future further what do you think that looks like relative to the entire sector? And how do you see the bank sector evolving with you? So Eric, why don't you get us started? Well, uh, yeah, you could unpack that for quite some time, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, so I, I believe we all understand the pressures on community banking. So I do believe everyone's kind of scrambling uh, to find differentiation, uh, brand awareness, as well as uh, revenue enhancement, cost saving ideas. And, and, and we're no different than that. Uh, in our community bank, we're, we are continuing to try to optimize the franchise. Uh, we are trying to employ our best strategies to improve its technology, its cross-sell, its, its regulatory oversight at a lower cost using AI, et cetera. 
CCBX, uh, we, we think that there will continue to be a lot of money plowed into via VCPE into fintech strategies. Fintech's a big word. Um, and, and again, that's all encompassing, but there's a lot of money flowing into it. And we want to be a part of that. Uh, we are excited to see how our, our collaboration with Google goes in the future. But when it all said and done, all of that comes back to a central depository of data. And that infrastructure we are building, hopefully in our case, uh, and right, and we have projections that, uh, that put Coastal out there at 15, 20 million households within a reasonable time frame of multiple years, but reasonable time frame. And our job, it really the way we see it to add value to all of our front end participants, whether that's our branches, whether that's our, our fintech partners through banking as a service, or whether that's through Google and the Plex account, is to be able to say, right, I have some of the best product suites in the country via these partnerships I have. You, you want a cutting edge technology, well, Coastal very well could be behind that payment system or could be behind that uh, challenger bank or could be behind this distinct way that they provide their service. My challenge is how do I enable them to cross sell that amongst multiple platforms to where we can get the cost of, of customer acquisition cost down across our entire ecosystem, right? Because I hold that data for everyone, right? They can't see each other's data. So our evolution will take us down the path of Chuck, but for many front ends, and try to really work on the partnership amongst the front end providers to say, we not only think we can help you with security and oversight and compliance, but we also think we can help you with lead generation, cross sell. Uh, you know, as an example, in my current franchise, we have females that bank with us, but I have absolutely zero broker dealer ability and financial planning models for those females. But I do through my partner, Elevest and Sally Krawcheck's Challenger Bank in New York. I'm, I'm struggling with why have I not had Sally talk to my customers, right? And empower those two organizations to give a better experience. And some people say, well, aren't you afraid that your customer at CCB will go to Sally? Well, at the end of the day, it's the same data pool. They all flow through Coastal. So the challenge I have and the evolution we will go down is making sure that my portfolio of front ends, branches, lenders, fintechs, Google, is robust enough that we can then turn that rat back around and re-put together a very complete ecosystem of financial services to meet every type of customer's needs. Right now, what you're having is B of A is dying by a thousand slices by fintech. I want to reassemble those thousand slices into a conglomerate of opportunity. So when customers come into our system, they see and have opportunity for everything. And the customer doesn't have to do anything to have access to everything because all of the data resides in the same place, which is coastal. So we're gonna rebundle, we're gonna repackage and be a very complete bank with very little R&D to do it. We're gonna lean on our partner's R&D to be able to deliver that but they're gonna love it because we're gonna add value to them, lower their cost of acquisition, lower, uh, lower their cost to cross sell and retain, as well as lower their cost of fraud management through technology and data management. Awesome, Larry, did you wanna talk about MVB 2.0, 3.0? 
Yes, it's definitely. If you, if you can see the future, you know, the way we see it anyway is, you know, which is probably a good trend. You're, you're seeing what uh, Eric's talking about banking as a service. So now he has Google as a client. Think about that, a, a less than a $2 billion bank. And he has Google as a client, which is a, which is a giant in the world. And so right now we have, what, a little under 5,000 banks in the country. That could be good. And, and, and what Joe would tell you is, is that that 5,000 banks probably going to turn into 2,000 banks over the next five to seven years through consolidation. So be less and less banks. But you'll see banking services that Eric's providing, really the, the companies, Google, Credit Karma, Intuit. Uh, uh, PayPal, et cetera, really start holding banking services because they have that client base. So we see that coming. So when I tell you we want to touch 1 billion lives positively through their financial lives, we have to have tech, tech, and more tech. So we're hiring developers. We're developing that tech, tech in-house. We're acquiring, as Eric said, he noted that we, we were acquiring outside tech. Um, and we think that's really the future and, and, and where we want to be. We basically want to be a tech company that happens to uh, own a bank as well. So as all those pieces come together uh, from the regulatory side, et cetera, we have a great CFO and biz dev guy, Don Robinson, who really focuses on outside uh, companies like fintech companies that we can bring into the fold that help us grow rapidly. We sometimes, it is moving so fast, we work like we're running out of time. And so sometimes you have to acquire that talent or, or what's already developed so you can continue to quickly scale. Um, so that's, that's basically where we see it going and what we're doing uh, to do that. So you'll see much more tech in our fin. So it'll be fin, of course, but tech will be capitalized for us. And Chuck, you wanna? China. Sure. Yeah, no. Um, you know, I think we're very blessed that we operate in Florida. You know, Florida is doing incredibly well. And there's, you know, one of the things we don't really have to leave the state to find customers. They're moving in here every day. And so our, our objective here is to continue as we move forward to be the best banking organization we can in the state. We're in very uh, unique, high value markets that are growing. And, uh, there's opportunity to grow organically. And, and our view is we want to be the bank of choice, but in order to be that bank of choice, we've got to, uh, we've got to be relevant with, with the nationals and we got to be competitive. And, and as Eric was mentioning, you know, it's, you've got to be good all the way across, have all your data in one place, be able to provide very good experiences for customers, no matter where they are in the organization. You know, we our analytics platforms proprietary. Uh, many of our other tools are, are, are things we acquire, but importantly, as we move forward, we're very focused on providing a much better digital experience. You know, online account opening came up, for example, one, one thing that we're very focused on, but ultimately having a much better mobile online experience as well as being more competitive in the marketplace with our bankers by providing them better technology through analytics and other tools. And so, you know, our key objective here is to continue to get better for customers, continue to get better with the speed of which we come to market and make it easier to do business with Seacoast. And we think we're in the markets to be able to do that and continue to grow. Great comprehensive answers, guys. Appreciate all that. Guys, in the interest of time, um, just maybe a list to uh, answer to this next question and a little blurb on each. The competition uh, is, is obviously coming from both fintech and the bank side. 
you three are clear leaders in this area. As you look across the country, who else do you admire? Who else is way ahead in this space, in this area, whether they're a direct competitor of, your, of yours or someone with a completely different strategy? And then on the flip side, who is doing some really neat things on the pure fintech side? Can we start with Chuck and then go uh, Larry and Eric? Yeah, have to make a few comments. Um, you know, I, I would say when we look for uh, who's doing a great job, again, I'll kind of lean back into, you know, if you look at the nationals, which, you know, 10 years ago, I'd never say this, but, you know, you look at the nationals today, uh, JPM or, or, or B of A, or some of the very large, the amount of investment in technology they've uh, put in and the online experiences they're providing their customers. So, you know, you take the Chase example, you, you know, if you look at their Sapphire program, Sapphire card benefits, Sapphire checking, UVest points off Sapphire, it is an online integrated experience with that is solid, is available, the service is great. There is, there is uh, lots of reasons to bank with that. And you know, community, community banks are going to have to be as competitive. And uh, I think in order to be that competitive, we're going to have to rely on fintech partners to help supplement that, like, like we've we talked about here today. I don't think it's something we'll be able to do on our own. And I also think it's something that the cores aren't going to provide. And so, you know, we, we have to be out looking for solutions for this to be competitive. I think there is going to be, that kind of came up earlier, is going to be mass consolidation across the industry. I think you're going to see it accelerate post-pandemic for all the reasons we're talking about. And I think fintechs are going to be a big part of that. So I think that uh, it's going to be this unique combination that makes us competitive. But I think we all are going to have to keep up with the nationals. And that's on the consumer side. And I think the business side is about to accelerate, you know, kind of the concept of open APIs for larger middle market and corporate customers is going to be there in a massive way. And it's going to be less about providing business online banking is more providing an API to these, uh, to these larger corporate entities. And so, and I think that's going to continue to go down in scale. And if you're not there, you're going to be irrelevant in, in the next five years. And so, it's, uh, I think, you know, from our point of view, we, we look at the nationals as being, you know, really best in class. And the best evidence of that is look at their share gains. They continue to gain share every day. Chuck, it's amazing. You and I were talking about this, what, two nights ago, um, how the world has changed. You and I started in the business 20 somewhat years ago, you know, taking share from the nationals was like taking candy from a baby. Right. Yeah. Giant mergers, and they were just terrible, right? And, and now, but anyway, um, Eric. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, it's easy to root for Silvergate now. Uh, they're the crypto bank out of uh, Southern California. Their stock is up 800 to 1,000% this year. Uh, but the reason I love those guys and I'm proud of them is they got into uh, banking as a service and they were committed to their their mission or their their opportunity that they chose, which was the crypto industry. They put a flag in the ground, a stake in. They were under a lot of scrutiny. Um, they had challenges with regulators and they stuck to their guns and they built it and it did well. And then now time has proven them right. And now they are in the pole position and now they are reaping the rewards for all of the agony they went through when the public was not buying off on it, regulators. So um, I, I'm big fans of those guys not because they've hit it well, but because of their passion and commitment to what they chose to do. Uh, I love them, but I do concur 
that uh, the industry as a whole is putting a lot of money into technology and, and the competition is changing. Uh, the ones that worry me the most or excite me the most are brands getting into financial services. This right, We're talking a lot about fintechs today getting into banking, but what about what Intuit has been doing, right? What about what Amazon, obviously Google, but think about this. What if other brands with great associations or loyal customer bases flip on the fin? I know Western Union is looking into getting checking savings because they have 36 million US users that send money over international borders with them. And getting a checking account and moving it from B of A to them makes sense. Uh, there are hundreds of brands with extreme loyalties that we're gonna be competing with that don't even exist as a fin today. So that's what we're watching, the evolution. Thanks, Eric Larry. Hey, Joe, other than uh, Chuck and Eric's bank, uh, I, I think uh, the most exciting bank for me inside FinTech is Live Oak. Um, I've admired Live, Live Oak the same age as us and they, they've skyrocketed past, I, I think a lot of others and, and talking about adding uh, shareholder value, not only for the bank, but then they developed Encino, which is outside the bank. And like I said, it's over, I don't know what it is today, but it was around $7 billion market cap. So that's phenomenal. So Live Oak would be my favorite on the bank side. On the pure FinTech, my pure FinTech play would be a company called Bilgo. Uh, as you may or may not know, it takes a lot of time for like a, a regular processor to, to do a bill. It may take like two to seven days for the vendor to receive a bill if you do it on bank bill pay. Uh, BillGo developed technology that you can pay a bill the same day and they are, they're doing a fantastic job skyrocketing. Uh, it's a pure hockey stick as far as growth and execution. So they would be my pure FinTech play. Guys, I wanna thank you for your insights today. I think we could go another hour and have it be uh, entertaining. <laughs> but uh, it's all about all the time we have today. So I wanna thank Chuck, Larry, Eric. Today, guys. Um, and with that, Brian, just turn it over to you for any closing remarks you might have. Yeah, just like you said, thanks so much, Chuck, Eric, Larry. I admire you guys, I admire your banks. Look forward to talking to you guys in, in you know, well into the future. Um, to all of our viewers, thanks for joining us. Um, this webinar will be available on YouTube on our on the Trevilian YouTube channel in the coming days. So feel free to share it and review it. Um, any questions that you have or comments, please reach out to me, uh, www.trevilliangroup.com. You can find all my information there and uh, have a wonderful day. Stay safe, stay sane, and have a wonderful 2021. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Great. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you.